Jackie Tan and welcome to the Bodies Built Better podcast. On the show, we chat with experts, athletes, coaches and authors to educate and inspire you. We explore the body's incredible ability to heal, adapt and evolve so you can crush limitations, reconnect your body and mind and discover your extraordinary potential. Today on the show, I chat with the natural nutritionist, Steph Lowe. We talk all things sports nutrition, training, and understanding what you need to be doing for your body. Now, I promise you, you will be blown away with all of this incredibly valuable nutritional information. Steph breaks down everything so, so well. Not only will you get a better understanding of what good nutrition is, but also what you could be doing in your training to get the best out of your body. You are going to learn so much from this. So please enjoy this episode with Steph Lowe. Steph Lowe, thank you so much for chatting with me today. I'm very excited to talk all things sports nutrition. Um, But before we do, can you give us a bit of a background on you and how you got into nutrition and especially sports nutrition? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So my personal journey starts back when I was a teenager, actually. I'll keep this part brief, but um, essentially I wanted to lose weight and I started devouring all the information I could around nutrition. And back then everything was low fat and very much about calorie counting. So what did I do? Well, I counted every calorie and cut every morsel of fat out of my diet. So as you can imagine... Um, that isn't the healthiest way to achieve weight loss. And it's certainly not what I do with my clients and my global audience today. And what it, what it really did, unfortunately, is um, completely interfere with my hormones and my mental health because we know just really simply that we need the right essential fats to make our hormones because they are you know, one of the key building blocks. And of course, our brain is significantly fat, made of fat. And so I then had a whole host of symptoms that were really impacting my health. And whilst I lost about 20 kilos, when I got to that quote unquote goal weight, I was quite depressed. You know, all along, I thought that achieving that weight loss would bring me happiness. And there was nothing further from the truth. I had um, what was never diagnosed as depression, um, but certainly doctors were suggesting that. And I knew even before I was a nutritionist that intuitively that wasn't the right decision for me to go down the pharmaceutical route. That's different for everybody. Um, Instead, I met someone who um, over time we became quite close and he encouraged me to quit gluten And he was way ahead of me. I didn't even know what gluten was. This is over 15 years ago. And after he had understood my story and um, the mental health side of things specifically, he set me a challenge to go gluten-free. And like I said, I knew nothing about it, but I was pretty desperate to feel good. So I was willing to give everything a try. Now, it wasn't easy back then. There wasn't gluten-free products or gluten-free items on menus. Nobody was really versed in whether it was a trend or whether it was the real deal or what. Um, but I guess what was um, fortunate in was that I was really looking for anything that could help me feel better. 
For me personally, the contrast was night and day, and it really was the catalyst to allow me to experience firsthand how food can impact us both, both positively and negatively. So whilst it was gluten-free to start, it really inspired this journey of understanding whole food. And I was so passionate about it that I wanted to be able to share my knowledge and obtain the qualifications in order to do so. So that's what inspired me to become a nutritionist. And I went back and did some postgraduate studies and um, kind of the rest is history in that regard. Like I started the natural nutritionist and I was really able to share my firsthand experience, but also the science because we now have a lot more understanding around foods like gluten, you know, our refined carbohydrates, vegetable oils, refined sugar, all of these conversations that have come out over the last, I would say more recently, the last five years, but since I've been doing it over the last decade, you know, the science is becoming crystal clear, which I think is so powerful. Don't you agree? Absolutely. Huge. And I find it interesting because I actually, I I heard an interview that you did and you mentioned how um, you knew by studying nutrition that you're going to have to study a lot of BS, your Mm. words, Um, Mm. you know, and the dietary guidelines and, and myths and maybe misconceptions around that. Can you just dive into that a little bit before we, uh, yeah, dive into sports nutrition? Yeah. So this was 2009. And so we didn't have courses like we do now with incredible companies like Changing Habits and the um, Institute of Integrative Nutrition and so many courses that are able to allow um, us to learn about whole food and gut health and, you know, the vagus nerve and all these amazing topics. But in 2009, I had what I had. So I was literally having this internal dialogue where I was like, right, I need that piece of paper on the wall. You know, I want to be a nutritionist. How do I get there? And, you know, the course that I was able to get into at the postgrad level was off the back of my undergraduate degree and I'd done human movement. So I had a lot of the prerequisites and had studied all of the biology and everything that you do in the first couple of years of a science degree. So I knew it was going to be quite food pyramid. Um, I guess I was lucky that it was over 10 years ago now. Like I would find it impossible to do that now. I can tell you. Um, But it was also really interesting because especially in the sports nutrition world, which we'll talk more about today, um, you know, I have athletes coming to me that are are doing exactly what I was taught, you know, the 300 calories an hour, or it's the one gram per kilogram of body weight per hour in their carbohydrates in every hour of training and in every hour of racing. And we see digestive issues and inflammatory issues and people are retiring from their sport early and this whole sort of almost mess that we've gotten into from that combination of Western food pyramid guidelines and conventional sports fueling guidelines. So it was a really good thing for me to understand that because now I, um, you know, I break down all those myths with my athletes and my audience and we also have research now to back that up. So I'm sure the curriculum will change eventually it's just based on the science, which was very carbohydrate heavy for many decades. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's get into this sports nutrition. When, when someone is starting a, a training program, what should they consider 
in planning their nutrition? Yeah, well, the first thing I think from an educational standpoint is to just under understand a little bit about physiology. Nothing too detailed, but to think about the body as having these two engines or these two tanks rather. And so if we're looking at eating a more Western food pyramid, we're essentially like a car that runs on petrol. And that's where we use, you know, muscle glycogen and of course carbohydrates that we consume exogenously and then when we when we don't do that or when we start to move to a more whole food template we can think of the analogy like a car that's diesel based right so you know i've owned both cars and i know how often i don't go to the petrol station when i'm you know when i'm driving that diesel engine and that's accessing your fat reserves and so the question that always gets asked is oh but i'm only eight or ten percent body fat you know from a male for example and it doesn't matter how lean you are. Like if you, if you do the numbers, even really lean people have 60 to 70,000 calories available and women have hundreds of thousands of calories available. So it's actually irrelevant how lean you are. You have plenty of energy available on board that, that is available in the form of fat. Um, it's just that you can't access it if you're always eating carbs. And certainly if you're always smashing sugary gels or Gatorade when you're out there training and racing. So we've got two choices, but it's not one or the other, which I think is an important conversation to have. The ideal goal is both. And that's where we use the term metabolic flexibility because we want to be able to be glycolytic. So we do need to eat some carbohydrates and we can define what they are as well so that we can you know, go faster and, and race. We don't want people carrying around that myth that lowering your carbohydrates makes you slow because that's BS. It's showing you that you haven't been doing it correctly. You've probably gone too extreme. Like most people can be predisposed to if they're in that A type athlete, you know, personality type, not a criticism. I think it can be incredible, but it can work against us if we are a little bit too extreme. So we want to be able to access both and Fat should be our predominant fuel source for the bulk of our training because most of us are aerobic athletes, at least, um, you know, what, who, who your audience is, Jack, and who I work with. So we want to be able to access that fuel. And, um, you know, therefore, our dietary decisions do need to be relatively low carbohydrate. So not ketosis, not keto, not eliminating fruit and vegetables, not even eliminating grains if they don't bother you digestively or symptom wise. But it is definitely moving away from conventional guidelines, which we've all heard are six to 11 serves of whole grains. You know, it might even be 400 grams of carbs a day. It's too much for lots of reasons. So it's moderately low carbohydrate, but really it's whole food. So it's fruit, vegetables, quality proteins, healthy fats. And, you know, we can go into the detail around that. But does that sort of make sense to set the scene? Yeah, let's dive deeper into that. So what we're talking about today is a low carb, high fat nutrition planning for athletes. Yeah. Yes, I call it LCHF and um, the acronym specifically that I'd like to encourage everyone to use is lower carbohydrate, so lower than the food pyramid, and then healthy fat. Because if we say low carb, high fat, people freak. They think it's ketosis. <laughs> they think they're going to hit the wall or get slow or lose their top end. And they are also often 
so afraid of certain fats because we have all, those of us that live in the Western world, have all been told to fear fats for five decades. Now, not everyone listening is 50 or more, but it's our whole life for a lot of us around fearing fat. So healthy fats reframes that because most people know that avocado and olive oil and nuts and seeds are great, but a lot of people fear the fat on the meat and the butters and the coconut oils and essentially the saturated fats that have unfortunately been demonized for 50 years vilified more recently but it's very slow movement so you know we, we are still seeing um the demonization of saturated fats continue and so yeah we want to make sure that we're having saturated fat in the diet because our brain is 25 percent saturated fat but it's only a small part of what we eat it's lots of omega-3 so that's why you'll hear me say avocado nut seeds olive oil wild caught salmon all the time because these are the right sorts of fat that we do want to make sure that we're prioritising underneath that LCHF umbrella. Is this the type of diet that you recommend everyone to be eating in general or are athletes really the ones that will benefit from this? Well, it's a really great question because what we need to define first is that it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. There is no one diet that works for everyone. Like no matter what anyone says, there is no one diet. So the but is around LCHF is it's a spectrum. And so we know we've got some pretty incredible research that the lower end of the spectrum, like between 25 and 50 grams a day, very low and not what I would recommend most people. But when it's prescribed properly, it can completely um, put type 2 diabetes into remission. It can also really help a type 1 diabetic manage their disease, which is autoimmune in nature, so not curable, but it's the ridiculously unstable blood sugar and the high insulin that's really damaging to a type 1 diabetic long-term. And so most type 1 diabetics find that their version of LCHF means stable blood sugars, which is the answer. Um, And then the spectrum goes all the way up to 150 grams, maybe even 200 grams of carbs a day in a lean, young male who does a lot of high intensity training. So it's very relative to factors like our sex, our metabolism, you know, whether we do have any carbohydrate intolerance, which those two sort of go together and definitely intensity because your carbohydrate requirements are always relative to intensity. So we can't forget that because as athletes, our training looks different every day. So we will have some days which are rest days, some which we would call our aerobic or, you know, zone one and two recovery sessions. And then of course we will have some that are zone four and five and high intensity glycolytic sessions. So we actually shouldn't be eating the same thing every day. Our carb requirements will change. Yeah, which you've basically just answered my next question, but I'll put it out in case. Um, So the nutrition is really dependent on the type of, you know, person you are, your circumstances, but also the type of training, like the CrossFit athlete who might be doing real high intensity um, power stuff to be maybe long distance runner doing marathons. Yeah, so a a more traditional version of LCHF is going to suit most endurance athletes, Um, especially those that are training properly when we're doing 80% low intensity and only 20% high intensity, which is a conversation we can get into. 
versus I work with a lot of CrossFit athletes that get some amazing benefits, but they're at the top end of the spectrum because a lot of them are doing intensity components nearly every day. Mm. What we can't forget is that LCHF, in my definition, definition of it, is just the same as just eat real food, JERF, our number one goal when it comes to our health. So we get confused because of keto and social media and I guess the hype around this sort of topic of late, but everyone needs to eat real food, like no matter who you are. So we just need to make sure it's really individualized to our goals and, and certainly to our chosen sporting endeavor. Yeah. Can we just talk quickly about LCHF in comparison to the keto diet? Like really what are the main differences? The main differences is the literal prescription of grams of carbs a day because keto is often defined by 25 grams of carbs so we're talking no fruit counting vegetables and then no offense to america but a lot of their keto templates are very much atkins so big slabs of meat with butter heaps of dairy like lots of cheese and you don't really see a lot of greens now that's not everyone so don't misinterpret me but what we're trying to do is get everyone to eat more plants And this is, again, not plant-based or vegan, but most of us don't eat enough vegetables. And that's what our foundation should be when it looks like LCHF. It's quite hard to do that in keto because you've only got 25 grams of carbs a day. So limiting your vegetables is is not sustainable long-term, in my opinion. Yeah, Yeah. cool. Let's talk pre- and post-event nutrition. Mm -hmm. How different do they look and what should we really be consuming for I guess, optimal recovery. Yeah. So, I mean, event or training? Oh, let's go training and then let's Mm. go event. (laughs) Yeah. It has to start in training because we, that's where we learn what suits us for event day. So I'm a big believer in the, the rehearsals. We use training to understand what we need to do on race day. So pre depends on intensity. If you're doing an aerobic session, remember we said it's fat burning. So you've got plenty of stores on board. Rarely do you need to consume any exogenous fuel or carbohydrates. So we call that faster training. You can have water, black coffee. Some people do their bulletproof or their MCT coffee. But, you know, really most of us should have the capacity to do that. If we don't, it's a sign that we need to have that metabolic goal. So come back to doing the fasted training once you've established your real food template day to day. And that is obviously what's going to retrain your metabolism. But most people should be able to do a fasted session for 45 or 60 minutes. It's when we look at those longer sessions like our triathletes and marathon runners are mostly doing on the weekend to generalize that we might need to consider fueling within the session um, beyond about the first hour the more fat adapted you become, it looks like two or two and a half hours where you can rely on water and sugar-free electrolytes before you start adding carbohydrate products. Um, but then, you know, obviously the goal is, is recovery, as, which was your question. Um, that also depends on intensity. So you'll notice this theme, it's all relative to intensity, right? So certainly if it was that um, fasted session that I'm using as an example, there actually isn't an urgent requirement for food or carbs post-training. So by all means, if you're hungry and it works logistically and so on, eat. But 
if you've done that session properly at you know correctly training in zone two you haven't really used much muscle glycogen so you don't have this urgent replenishment requirement Versus zone four or five, yes, you're using predominantly muscle glycogen, which is a tank that needs topping up. So we would be looking to refuel within the hour and including a good source of carbohydrate with that meal. So it might be a banana in your smoothie or some sweet potato with your next meal. Now, one thing to think about is what happens digestively post-exercise. So our body goes into recovery. And what that means is our resources are being delivered outwards so to the heart to the legs to the lungs and then we try and put food in and it's like this game of tug of war with the resources the blood flow coming back into the gut the gut will always lose because the brain and the heart are obviously essential um, and so that is why a lot of people say oh, i just don't feel like eating after training especially if it's high intensity and i agree with you like it's almost not the best well not almost it's actually not the best state to be digesting in because your body is still very sympathetic dominant whereas digestion occurs when we're parasympathetically dominant so i don't agree with that myth that we hear about you have to eat within 20 minutes and you get your protein shake and you know that conversation that we see quite a lot in the gym slash personal training slash bodybuilding world um, but i do love smoothies you'll hear me mention smoothies a lot and it's not you know, I nearly said a company, I probably shouldn't, but it's not like a, a shop smoothie that's full of juice and asahi and dates and blah, blah, blah. It's actually something that you'd make at home that has veggies, quality protein, healthy fats, you know, some berries, maybe a banana if it's high intensity. And I've got recipes I can share with you guys for sure. Mm -hmm. But yeah, what you have before and after training depends on the intensity. This is, this information is so incredible and it's blowing my mind. I think, I mean, anyone... Like you just, you just said, I mean, if you're fat adapted, it's, it can be up to two hours mm. in your training, racing, whatever you're doing before you need anything. Mm. I mean, that's so not just, so much racing. okay. Yeah. Not so much racing because the intensity is much yeah. higher. So let's sure. talk about this, but definitely in training. I mean, hopefully we're getting to the point where we're really understanding that it's not more and harder and, and high intensity that we need. It's mostly long, steady distance, so like the LSD kind of training. And so at that low intensity, yeah, it's trainable. So like a muscle in the gym, it takes time that we wouldn't need to fuel for two or two and a half hours. In racing, though, we pull it forwards because the intensity is higher. And this strategy we would have practiced in training when we're doing our race day replication sessions. Yeah, but for most people, that is mind-blowing. They think, what is she talking about? I'll fall off my bike after 45 minutes. But it's a process. Yeah, awesome. Can we just knock out um, the myths around needing... Get, yeah, I won't say them. <laughs> I was about to say the, the, the brands. Um, your sports mm. drinks and gels. Yeah. So that's a huge industry. And certainly I, like I've studied that research very well. In fact, I did a, um, like a literature review on the research around why the products that we're talking about exist in, in like, I'll simplify it. We know that we've got this like upper limit of glucose absorption. And, but if we include a two to one ratio of glucose and fructose, we can absorb more. So that's how we can possibly get up to those 
you know, huge limits of like 90 grams of carbs an hour. We can't do that with glucose alone because our body doesn't have enough transporters for just glucose. So most of the old school products are a two to one ratio of glucose to fructose. And we're encouraging people that we need to train our body to tolerate more. And then what do we see in an Ironman or a marathon? People vomiting or they're in the bushes with their pants around their ankles and their races are destroyed because of gastrointestinal issues that are actually due to a few reasons. I mean, fructose is that sugar that causes a lot of water to be drawn into the gut, unlike glucose. Water in the gut's got to come out one or the other ends and it's, you know, disaster. And then what I said before, if we're racing and we're high intensity, our gut is going to shut down eventually because our body is delivering the resources outwards. The blood flow needs to go to the heart, legs and lungs. So we, it's a game of tug of war and the gut will always lose. So it's not about training ourselves to tolerate the most it's about taking the time to train us, our body to need as little as possible. So that's not zero grams like we try and what we see people trying to do online, but it's relative. So it's relative to intensity, but it might be somewhere like 30 grams of carbohydrates an hour for a light, lean female. And it might be 60 grams of carbohydrates for like an 80 kilogram male. So it's, it's 30 to 60 grams. I know that's not super specific, but it's not 90 grams an hour. And the more fat adapters you get, the less you need. Yeah. Amazing. And so would you say that, I mean, I know this is going to be different for everyone, but you, it is quite common to hear those gut issues in training and, and, and race day. Is that what you kind of put it down to generally? As a general rule, it can definitely be addressed by, getting someone to firstly understand they don't need to take that much. Um, Secondly, remove fructose. And then thirdly, yeah, work out a strategy where it might even be half the grams of carbs per hour. Um, So much more sustainable over the durations that we're talking. Now, if you're doing a half marathon or if you're fairly fast over a marathon, you can get away with it because it's, it's, not, it's not that many hours. You know, it might be an hour and a half. It might be three hours for a marathon, but it's a real issue, certainly for 70.3s and Ironmans and ultra marathons because you're out there for days sometimes, right? And so that's where your gut can't tolerate. It's purely the volume and then especially the fructose. Yeah. Great. What are your thoughts around fasting? Day to day, we all fast. So people get a little bit, yeah, people get a little bit um, concerned. And that's why, again, I always come back to definitions because there's intermittent fasting, which could be a 16 hour fast. There's water fasting, which is the obvious. There's 48 hour fast. And we're not necessarily talking about, you know, the water or the 48, but we all fast. And so what I get everyone to start with is the quick calculation of what's your current overnight fast. So if you finish dinner at eight and you eat brekkie at 8am, well, you're doing a 12 hour fast. Brilliant. That should be our minimum. It rests our gut. It allows us to repair and it takes the pressure off constantly digesting food, which we have done in the West for too long. Then if you've got that continual fat adaptation goal, we start to look at, is it appropriate for us to lengthen the fast? 
So can we try a 13 hour fast, which is again, super reasonable. You either have dinner a little earlier or breakfast an hour later. So it's really not that major as in a change. And many people find their mind already be doing a 13 hour fast organically. Yeah. 16-8 is the most popular version of intermittent fasting. So that's obviously 16 plus 8 is 24 hours. So in one day, we're fasting for 16 and eating for 8. The research on this is pretty incredible. It simulates a process called autophagy, which is that cleaning out of dead and disease-like cells. Great for anti-aging. But the research is done in college-aged men. So men can fast 16-8. Most men can fast 16-8 till the cows come home. When women of childbearing age need to be super conservative because fasting for too long can, not always, but can send our hormones a little offline. And so usually we're far more conservative. So it might be one to two days a week for our um, childbearing age women. And then postmenopausal women have a lot more flexibility. I just don't think we need to jump in the deep end with fasting. We need yeah. to establish day-to-day -day blood sugar control first. And then it's a muscle that we train gradually, like most things. Yeah. What are, in your experience, what are the telltale signs that, because um, gut issues seem to be a major a major thing. So what are the telltale signs that there is in athletes or, or anyone in general gut health issues or, or inflammation? Well, there's lots of symptoms. So we know that um, all health starts in the gut, right? So we can have obvious gut symptoms like IBS. So that's irritable bowel syndrome. It could be constipation. It could be diarrhea. It could be bloating. It could be those really typical gut symptoms, which were most, which most of us are pretty across. But I see gut issues manifest in lots of different ways. So this, our skin is our largest organ. So often it reflects what's going on internally. So we treat things like acne and eczema with the gut, not solely. There's topical things to do as well, but from the gut. Um, but then, yeah, if the gut is inflamed and what that can sort of summarise or be summarised as is certainly if our diet's not rich in fibre, if it's too high in inflammatory foods, even too much poor quality protein can change the ratio of the microbes in our gut. So they can become more pro-inflammatory. So an inflammatory gut can create systemic issues like injuries that never recover. So anyone that's got a chronic injury that hasn't looked at what they eat, um, like needs to <laughs> a lot. Yeah. And I feel for all the elite athletes that quit the sport, you know, retired early from injuries, that may have been able to be addressed if we really understood inflammation and the role of food and the microbiome. So it's huge. It's huge for addressing almost every health issue. It needs to form a part. It doesn't fix everything. Like other people could be having issues that are purely hormonal. So addressing the gut is not going to fix it, but it's not harmful. It's one of the best decisions we could make to be investigating and becoming more curious about. Let's let's dive deep into some training now because yeah. I have recently enrolled in your LCHF endurance program um, yeah. and I'm about to start it. In the program, you advocate math training. Mm -hmm. Can we dive deep into that, please? Yeah, so what I will say is 
This is the work of Dr. Phil Maffetone. So I will direct you to philmaffetone.com because he's the pioneer. He's been doing this since I believe the 1970s. But MAF or MAF is, it stands for maximal aerobic function. So it's really trying to understand our ideal maximum heart rate in which to base all of our aerobic training. So zone one and zone two. When we exceed this heart rate, it's often this rapid transition towards anaerobic. And so before I was talking about zone one and zone two, and then we've got zone four and zone five, I didn't mention three. Well, I'm not a massive fan of zone three because often it can be this black hole. And if we don't know our heart rate well, we end up training here because we don't do zone five sessions all the time. Like it's not possible to be at 100% or near 100% all the time. But we very often spend too much time at a heart rate that's a little too high to be burning fat and working on our aerobic engine and then too low to get faster. So it's the black hole and we just get sort of no results or minimal results and we often burn out. So we need to know our, our MAF heart rate. So the formula is to just subtract, subtract your age from 180. So you can do that quite simply. If you're 30 years old, your MAF heart rate is 150. But there's a couple of categories we need to look at a bit more closely. Because you have like a major illness um, or if you're on any regular medication, if you've had any overtraining or burnout, you actually have to take 10 beats per minute off that. So it would become, this example would become 140. If you've been injured, if you've experienced regression or not improved in training, if you get more than two colds or flus every year, if you're overweight, you actually have to subtract five. So that would be 145 in this example. Um, but then if you're very healthy, you're training four times a week with, for two years with none of the problems that we've been discussing. Um, you, you don't need to make any changes, but you get to add five beats if you've been um, improving competitively and had no injury and been super healthy for two years. So that's a lot of detail. So we can direct you guys to where to read more about that on philmaffetone.com. But the point is you need your number. So you need your MAF heart rate and you need to spend 80% of your training underneath it. So if we use the example of 150, say this person's really healthy and they've been improving and they've had a great two years of training and racing and they're at the 150 beats per minute, then they need to spend the bulk of their training like no higher than that. So, you know, definitely not 153, like some people decide they want to do. It needs to be like 148, 149, 150. And then only 20% of your training is that top end where, of course, you're allowed to do intervals and you definitely want to see your training, your heart rate, sorry, go quite high. But the vast majority is sitting just under that MAF heart rate, which is how we get aerobic benefits. And we're all aerobic athletes, right? So that's, that makes a lot of sense when you understand what you're trying to achieve. What would you say to, to those athletes who try and go this is just too slow mm. i don't feel like yeah. i'm it's doing anything for me or or i could possibly improve so two things one 
we need to spend time understanding it. Like just me saying this might not mean much to someone who's only trained the opposite and perhaps is coached by someone who has a different philosophy. So I get it. So like you mentioned LCHF endurance, there have been a couple of people who are finding it really hard. They feel like they're going backwards or they're just not getting any better. And I've heard it like probably not a hundred times, but I've heard it many times that I get it, but it, it's a commitment. So you do have to give it a couple of months. And truthfully, it's about putting our ego aside. Most people have a problem is because they know they can run six minute Ks or five minute Ks or four minute Ks. And when they see that to run at 150, they have to go slow in their mind. It messes with their head. So it takes time to understand what we're doing and to commit to the journey of basically um, unlearning for a lot of people and retraining your physiology because that's what it's doing. Now, the second thing is that the formula isn't perfect for everyone. And obviously it's a great generic formula, but I do have athletes where um, they, from what they know about their numbers, because they're data nerds and they've been in the sport for ages, they know it's not quite right. We can do something called metabolic efficiency testing, where you get your crossover point, which is the point at when you cross over from mostly fat oxidation into your glycogen. And that crossover point can replace their MAF heart rate. But that's a test that you would do with a exercise physiologist usually. And it's not accessible to everybody, but it is if you've got access to it, personalized. So it's not a generic formula. It's your own physiology. It's your own data. So a lot of my athletes end up doing that sort of testing and I can help them interpret it because they want that data. Because we do our blood tests, we do our... Um, MET and we do we do all the things like FTPs and all the things so that we're not just using formulas online because they, there is going to be quite a large generic component for the outliers. Yeah, of course. And what what would you say? I mean, I know you kind of just answered this, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, to those um, athletes who already have um, quite a high heart rate. I mean, my my dad, for example, he's he's a great cyclist and, and weekends we'll be doing riding up to, you know, a hundred kilometers in the hills and whatnot. He's got a very, and has been doing this for <clears throat> like decades, decades. Yeah. <laughs> he's that old now. Um, <laughs> so if his heart rate is so high for someone so fit, what, what, do, you, what do you say to those athletes? What do you mean by high? As in, it can sustain a high heart rate you over can 100 days? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, look, it, I don't know him, so it, there might sure. be some areas yeah. when we unpack in terms of like um, symptoms or goals not being met, and so on and so forth. So we could definitely unpack all of that. But the testing is a really great way for us to confirm that perhaps he is able to pick up his MA half rate by 10 beats or 20 beats. And that's great to know. That's so powerful, that information. Yeah. So why is math training so powerful? When the intensity is right, the volume can be so suitable. And that's what my athletes find life-changing. Like a lot of people 
are getting to the point where they're almost finding long course unbearable because they're exhausted and they're on the couch and it affects their time with their children and their wife and their business or their husband and so on and so forth. And then they realize, ding, 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 they've been doing it wrong for decades or years. And then they realize, oh my God, I can actually do an Ironman and not have to sleep so much in the afternoon or not be a grumpy, you know what, all day because my blood sugar's out of control. So it really does extend our longevity in the sport as well as, you know, not getting injured and not being inflamed from all the sugar and refined carbs. Longevity is key. Yeah. Amen to that. (laughs) Okay. So working with a nutritionist is incredibly powerful because not only are are we being educated about our bodies, but um, you know, you take almost take the pressure off us Mm. knowing, you know, what we should be doing and, and how to get the most out of our bodies. So what can someone expect from a consult with you? You know, it's a great point because we have a coach, right? So we put that much time into our training program and it, we, it doesn't make any sense to neglect our nutrition, especially because it's often about 80% of the equation. So especially with my athletes, I'll go through their goals in detail because a lot of people have a performance goal, but usually and hopefully as a health goal. So we've got a number one health goal, which is like longevity in the sport. And then we might be, you know, performance or sports fueling. So we unpack the goals. But then in a consult, I like to spend time going through any relevant medical history, medications, supplements, and then the real day-to-day conversation starts. So like, you know, what time do you eat? When are you training? So we can marry the two up. So we're always looking at merging this training program with our nutrition program, because we do need to know what to eat before and after, what time to eat. Are we fasting? What's our window? And so we do spend a bit of time building out the structure for the day. It's not rock solid. It's just like guidelines that you can, you know, tweak based on your day because that can change. And then of course we look at the training in more detail and the longer sessions around how to fuel. So like we were talking about before, whether it's one hour in or two hours in and what we're using. So not just that you need X grams of carbs per hour, but what products or what homemade versions we might be using. And we then develop a um, strategy that we test in training. And then that will evolve over time. But then we also look at a strategy that we'll need for our race day replication sessions and for race day, because those two things differ, differ because the intensity differs. So we don't just have a fueling plan that we use for a zone two session and pick it up and use it on race day. It often won't work unless you're one of those examples, like a fast half marathoner or marathoner. You often need more carbohydrates because it's higher intensity. So there's a few different strategies that we test. And then my clients usually do blood testing so we can optimize their pathology and their health. Um, and we talk about gut health. Like there's so many fantastic areas that we can explore together based on where they're starting from. It doesn't all need to be done at once, but it can be a lovely journey to, to work on over a number of months. Amazing. And what would you say to the athlete who has started their program is in the middle of it? They're not feeling great or they know they could get more out of their body. When is it? too late to start a nutrition program, especially if they're training towards, you know, race. 
I don't think it's ever too late. Not too late. Because if it was me and you had a race in two weeks, we'd be doing really different stuff to if you had a race in 12 weeks. But doing nothing <laughs> is worse than doing something. Yeah. And so even I have had clients, um, I can think of one example really recently, and he was doing a um, little separate conversation. He's a boxer and he's got to do this, this event in three weeks. And so, of course, we had a really transparent conversation around what's achievable in three weeks and what's not, but anything's going to make a difference. And it's the same for endurance athletes. Like, no, you won't have time to get fat adapted in two weeks, so we won't be putting you on 30 grams of carbs an hour when it's way too low, but we can start the journey. And the great thing about having a race so close is that you also then have an off-season, and so we can really start to get the ball rolling in the off-season even more so. Steph, this has been sensational and I've loved every minute of this. Thank um, you. If, if people want to learn more about you and your work and want to get in touch with you, how can they go about doing that? Yeah, for sure. So my online home is thenaturalnutritionist.com.au. You can find all the links there, including my socials. I mostly hang out on Instagram and that's The Natural Nutritionist. Wonderful. And you've got a LCHF two-week reset. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Thank you. So it's my two-week LCHF reset, which is actually a four-week program, but it's two weeks to get started and then some guidelines on what you do after that. But two weeks of whole food. For a lot of people, they need that guideline, that guidance rather, so literally what to eat and when. And so I provide you with that as well as lots of education around things like gut health and saturated fats and fasting. And we have a really great online community. I think that makes a big difference. Like online programs are incredible. I think it's the connection that makes them because we can all do it together and um, there's people that like to repeat it that sort of, you know, been eating too much bread in COVID or drinking too much alcohol during homeschooling, they can restart it. Like it's always there when we do, you know, fall off the bandwagon to whatever degree. Totally. And it's nice to see how people are, um, I guess their experience and their journey and how similar it can be to yours. And that, um, yeah, that community is really, really special. And um, yeah. And I learned so much from that. It's great. It's so great. Yeah. And you have a 12 week LCHF Endurance? Yeah. So LCHF Endurance is my program that has been designed specifically for endurance athletes. So 12 weeks and it's all what we've discussed today. So nutrition, you know, gut health, um, sports fueling, MAF training, MET. So the testing we were talking about. Um, and we've got a, an intake later this year. So I can send you some more information on that. Um, we've just got one round running at the moment and we'll be looking at one in a number of months. Wonderful. We'll definitely get the details uh, from you when, when that. Yeah, so it's lchfendurance.com.au. And if you want to learn more, like when the next round is starting, definitely pop your email there um, and we'll be in touch. Beautiful. Once again, Steph, thank you so much. Um, to finish off this incredible interview, what, what is your message to those who feel like they're doing everything in their training and diet and uh, still aren't getting the results that they want? 
I think we have to keep it simple and think about the foundation. So just going back to some of the basics and looking at how much real food you're eating versus how much might be in a packet or a box or a little bit more convenient or Uber Eats style. Getting back in the kitchen, I think is the magic pill. So there isn't a magic pill, by the way, there isn't a magic pill, but getting back in the kitchen and having like the, the joy and the time and the experience of cooking, nothing beats it because you can control everything that goes in your mouth. And then you can really start to make a whole food journey really affordable and one that the whole family can get involved with. Sensational. Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I had so much fun. How good was that? Now, I just have to say, once we stopped recording, Steph was like, you know, we didn't talk about this and this. So if you get questions, let me know. And I'm like, what? So because you, my friends, are my world, if you have any questions from this episode or you want to know any specifics or maybe even an example training plan, let me know because Steph, being the incredible woman that she is, has said she will answer your questions. So throw them at me because this is your chance to get the understanding that you need. Now, I will also have the LCHF links in the show notes for you to check out and subscribe and and find out more about those as well. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you loved this episode and know anyone who would also benefit from learning about nutrition, then please share this with your friends. Of course, subscribe because I would appreciate that. And, you know, just tag it and story it and Instagram it and Facebook it. (laughs) Do all of the things because I'd also really appreciate that too. Have an amazing day, week, month, and year. And here is to a world of bodies built better. Bye.